listeners. During the month of June, we're taking a short break and replaying some of our favorite episodes. This week, we want to share our interview with Megan Gogarty, who is not only laugh-out-loud hilarious, but truly inspirational. Megan is a playwright, comedian, and delightful person, and she has so much to say about being an artist, setting aside time to write, and theater being a haunted house, a rave, and a party. Enjoy! Another episode of Beckett's Babies. We're your hosts, Sarah Cho. And Sam Collier. And today we are super lucky to have with us digitally Megan Gogarty. She's a playwright, comedian, and delightful person. She just closed a run of her one person show, Feast, at Riverside Theater in Iowa City. Her other plays include Lady Macbeth and her pal Megan, Bad Panda, Hillary Clinton Got Me Pregnant, and Save Me, Dolly Parton. Her musical tribute album to the TV show Buffy the Vampire Slayer is widely available online. Megan was a Playwright Center Jerome Fellow, is a WordBridge alum, and earned her MFA in playwriting from the University of Texas at Austin. She currently teaches playwriting at the University of Iowa and is a regularly returning visiting faculty member for the Playwrights Lab at Hollins University. Welcome to Beckett's Babies. Thanks for having me. When you say it all like that, it sounds like I know what I'm doing. (laughs) well it's very it's very impressive um and so Megan we like to start um by asking all of our guests about their earliest memory so what was your life like my earliest memory is real dark is is that all right is that this kind of podcast it's totally fine or is this a like what's up horn dogs kind of a podcast (laughs) we welcome the dark memories excellent so my earliest memory, I was two years old and uh, my dad had, uh, he'd gotten in an accident and they'd given him some painkillers, which he wasn't supposed to mix with alcohol, but he Uh-oh. was an alcoholic. So he did. And he went crazy. And oh so gosh. the way that he went crazy, is he destroyed the house. And he was, my, so I remember I'm in the darkened hallway and he's in the kitchen and he's out of his mind yelling and screaming and breaking the kitchen chairs over the countertops and just yelling, screaming. And my mother is very quietly and calmly zipping us up in our coats and she's going to get us out of there. And what I remember about that, I didn't have any sort of sense of danger. I don't remember feeling any sense of um, uh, nervousness, but I remember that my coat was this powder blue coat with reindeer on it. And my sister who was older had a coat that was, a brown coat with reindeer on it, same coat, just a different color. And I remember thinking that coat is totally going to be mine. <laughs> oh my god! Like that's what I remember. Like, I'm going to get that coat. Wow. And then my my mother marched us out of the house down the street to my uncle's house, where we sat on the couch, and my mother cried. Mm-hmm. 
and that's when I realized, oh, something's wrong Mm -hmm. because my mother's crying and I'm not allowed to get off this couch. Wow. That's quite a memory for being two years old. How about that for a memory? It's great. Wow. So naturally I went into a life of comedy. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So when did you um, first sort of experimenting with comedy? Well, uh, God, when did I learn to talk and walk, Mm -hmm. right? Like, I remember when I was a little, little kid, you know, that movie Singing in the Rain. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. And I watched that movie over and over again. And Donald O'Connor, who's he's who I wanted to be. I wanted to be Donald O'Connor because he had all the best lines in that movie. And he had that great song that's actually, I, I discovered as an adult, it's actually a ripoff of another song called Be a Clown. But I didn't know that at the time. Uh, it, but it was called Make Him Laugh. And it was, you know, he would do all these things, you know, pratfalls and, you know, pies in the face and all that sort of stuff. Uh, and I was like, that's what I want to do. I want to go into vaudeville. Mm-hmm. That's my plan. And I didn't know what vaudeville was. I thought maybe it was like a city in upper New York. Like, I didn't know. <laughs> I didn't know that it was an industry that had been dead for 60 years by the time that I'm watching this movie. But that's what I thought. I thought that's that's the answer is to be an entertainer and be like Donald O'Connor and sing and dance and tell jokes and go into vaudeville. And how old were you again? Oh, I don't know. Six. Six. Wow. Like from a young age. That's what so I So then did you do theater at school when you were growing up? How did you yeah. kind of get started? My mom was a seventh grade reading teacher. And what she liked to do is put on school variety shows that she would somehow get all of her students involved and also her other faculty teachers. And she did this thing called Mulligan Stew every year. And it was just like, you know, old Lily Tomlin sketches and old like laughing style comedy. Um, but for, you know, her junior high audience and she would often need like a ringer. She'd often need like a Uh little kid to be like, to say the funny last line. And she would put me and my sisters to work. Um, but I was the one who really loved it. So, uh, I have these, it was the first time I was on stage was as a, I mean, before I was in kindergarten, I was on stage being like the the funny one for my mother mm-hmm. in various, various stuff. And there's these great pictures of me, you know, wearing giant cowboy hats and various ridiculous costumes. And my mother continued this tradition through her retirement, even as she left that school and became a high school principal. Then that high school started doing these yearly variety shows. And always with a role in it for my mother that was always hilarious. Like she has, she had these like fake breasts she would wear, (laughs) fake giant bottoms she would put on under her dress and various wigs and glasses. Like that level, you know, in other words, sophisticated comedy (laughs) is what I'm saying. You know, no coward-esque wordplay. (laughs) (laughs) And we would do these things like, um, we did, um, and this is like when I was, uh, I don't, I was an adult and we, I was home visiting and she's like, great, we're here. We're going to be in the sketch. And it was me and my two sisters and my mother. And we did a dance to once, twice, three times a lady where my mother and me and my other sister were the three headed lady. <laughs> and then my other sister was the suitor in a little you know suit and mustache and whatnot. And my mother had, would have her breasts 
and like she would be able to move them. Like she was in the she was the middle head and she held on the breasts so the breasts could sort of jiggle when she wanted them to. I mean, it was, it was just ridiculous. Wow. So if it seems like comedy was always in the forefront of all that you did and or do, and so when did playwriting start to come into picture? Well, I wanted to write once I learned how, um, but it didn't occur to me to write plays because I thought all the real plays were written. Like they were all, they were all written by white guys who were dead. Like it just didn't occur to me that people were writing new plays. Yeah. Um, it wasn't until I met a playwright at a high school theater thing uh, that it occurred to me, oh, I could, I could learn to write plays. Like they're, they, they're not all written. So uh, I started writing in college and uh, quickly started writing material for myself when uh, the casting directors were not appreciating my talent. <laughs> <laughs> so then I started writing my own stuff, which led to sort of um, a fascination with solo work. And that kind of dovetailed really nicely into stand-up comedy and sketch comedy, all that sort of swirling in the big pie. And uh, that's what I did. And then I got to grad school eventually and was like, okay, now I'm in grad school. So now I have to write serious plays, like real serious plays. Sociopolitical work was was my whole Mm -hmm. thing. And I stopped writing comedy for a long time um, because I thought this is, I have to write I had these weird ideas that I don't think I had. Um, they were received ideas and I hadn't really interrogated them. Like I didn't, I don't think I realized I had these ideas, but I had these ideas that in order to be taken seriously, you had to write plays that um, had some kind of sociopolitical bent. You had to write plays that were important, capital I important plays. And you had to write plays about men. So I wrote plays about men uh, who were important and if there were a woman in the play, you know, she was be either a girlfriend or a helper, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, it's a just sounding like, board. <laughs> yeah, sounding board, you know, not real, not a real character. Um, and it just sort of that's because I, I wanted to be taken seriously. And I thought that's the way you do it. And it took me a while to unlearn that. During that time, did you stop performing in your own work as well? Did oh you yeah, think that you had to kind of stop doing that in order to be I'll thought you, of seriously. I stopped performing. I stopped performing uh, right around the time I went to grad school. They were sort of um, a kind of a linked, a linked decision. I was in Chicago before I went to grad school. I was living in Chicago. I was trying everything I could think of. Um, and one of those things was I had, I'd somehow stumbled into an acting agent who was sending me out on commercial auditions. And I don't know, Sarah, Sam, if you've ever been on commercial auditions, but they are really, um, depressing. You know, they're, they're, uh, if it's more depressing almost to get the role than to not get mm. the role. Um, I remember I got a, I booked a print ad and they plucked my eyelashes without Whoa. asking and like, they didn't even ask me. And I was like, shouldn't you ask me? And they're like, no, you don't understand who you are. Like, you're a, this a print ad. You're a set piece. Like, Whoa. Yeah. And I was like, wow. Um, but also, it also became really clear that my agent and the wider world sort of didn't know what to do with me because at the ripe old age of 25, I didn't really fit a commercial mold. I wasn't an ingenue type. 
Um, but I also had a baby face, so that made it harder to cast me as the pleasant, straightforward psychiatrist in her <laughs> early 30s, right? Like, who, what to do with me? Um, my hips were too broad to play teenagers, um, but my shoulders were too narrow to play mothers. Oh, my God. That's just so infuriating. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. And I remember at one point, this one I remember really well, they sent me out for um, an industrial uh, audition for Lane Bryant, which is a plus-size clothing uh, outfit. And I said, well, does it, is it going to get in my way that I'm not actually a plus size woman? Like, don't you think they want a plus size <laughs> right. woman to advertise their plus size clothing? And they're like, just go. <laughs> I was like, okay. Wow. <laughs> and, like, like, and so I was like, there's no spot for me here. I either have to gain 20 pounds or lose 20 pounds. And what I want to do is not think about what I weigh. Right. Like actually what I want to do is not give any energy to that. And so I thought again, and this is the, the, the the mistake of youth is I was like, Oh, well then I'll just stop performing. Mm. They don't, there's no spot for me on, in the theater, uh, in the commercial acting there, there's no roles for me. Um, I tried writing my own roles, uh, to a certain extent, you know, it made a little bit of progress there, but ultimately, uh, I, I'm tired of people looking at me. Yeah. So uh, I was like, okay, I'm going to be a serious playwright. I'm going to write serious plays and I'm going to be taken seriously. And then I didn't get back on stage again for about 11 years. And then I got on stage again right after my first child was born, like 11 days after I gave birth. Oh, wow. I got on stage. And then that was so remarkable because I realized that, well, it actually doesn't matter what I weigh or what I look like on stage. <laughs> like that's, that's, that was, right. Yeah, Hollywood doesn't have a spot for me, but screw Hollywood. Like screw them. Like, in fact, I can do whatever I want. So then I started doing my own work again, um, which was really great for me. Uh, I hope I'm not blathering on, but no, no, no. Um, it was really great uh, for me. Because by this point, I was teaching at the University of Iowa in Iowa City, which is a beautiful town, and I love it very much. Um, but it's also hours and hours away from anybody. And so <laughs> I'm finding myself sort of feeling very frustrated in that my plays would get produced or premiered in cities far, far away, and I couldn't really participate in that, right? So like uh, Bad Panda got its premiere in Baltimore, and I remember – and I went dutifully to opening night and it was great. And I, you know, hugs, hugs, kiss, kiss. Everyone was great. But I felt like I had sort of been cheated because I didn't get to sit in the rehearsal process. I didn't get to participate. You know, I didn't, I didn't go into theater because I wanted to make it through the mail. Right. I, I wanted to make it in the room. I wanted to, to be a part of it. Um, and so I thought, well, Megan, then get on stage. Like if I want to get my work in front of an audience, if I want, what's the shortest line between me and an audience. And so then I started uh, sort of almost like out of necessity, started doing my own work. Um, and now that's the thing that I do. Like I haven't written a play with more than one actor in it in years. I'm really curious about what that, show was that got you back on stage after 11 years 
I had, uh, the whole time I was writing these serious plays, I was <laughs> continued to write comic monologues for myself, but I didn't think of them as comic monologues because I didn't think that I would ever be on stage again. Uh, okay. And so I thought of them as performative essays. Like, I don't know what I was thinking. <laughs> and I just write these things and stick them in the drawer. And I uh, was very, very deeply pregnant and Riverside Theater, which is the local theater here in Iowa City, they put out a call for comic monologues about Iowa. Like if you know, like some about Iowa and the, the Iowa caucus was right around the corner. This was 2000, late 2007, early 2008. Right. And so the Iowa caucus was just around the corner. And so all the presidential, presidential candidates were everywhere. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, you know, I have a really funny story that I tell at parties about meeting Hillary Clinton at a bookstore. <laughs> uh, so I'll, and that's kind of, I'm an Iowan and she's in Iowa right now. So let's say that's it. So I typed it up and sent it to them and they said, we love it and we want you to do it. And I was like, but I, I can't cause I'm going to have a baby. And they're like, it'll be fine. Uh, so I, I did, I had a baby and then the show opened and everybody else's call was at six 30. Um, my call was at nine. And so we would drive up to the theater at nine o'clock you know, brand new parents, like, I don't know what to do. Um, so my husband had the baby in the backseat of the car and he would drop me off at nine and he would just circle the theater <laughs> and I would go. And then at nine fifteen, I was on the stage and at nine thirty, we did curtain call. And then you went and back to your baby. Oh my goodness. And then I went back to my baby. Wow. wow. And I was like, this is the life. Wow. This is what I want. Yeah. That's such a great story. And you know what? Flash forward. Let me just, this is apropos of nothing, but I was um, last year, two years ago or something. Yeah, it was about two years ago. I was doing uh, one of my shows at the Fort Lauderdale Fringe Festival. And it's just as glamorous as it sounds. And <laughs> I was backstage. And if you ever, have you ever worked a Fringe uh, Festival? I, yeah. No. Well, I did one in Hollywood Fringe. Yeah. It's kind of manic. Okay, great. <laughs> <laughs> it is manic, right? Like you have 10 minutes to set up, yeah, you have five minutes yeah. to change over. Like it's really crazy. So I'm backstage and like some show is on and I'm waiting for my 10 minutes to jump on the stage and I'm, and I'm back there and it's like piles of dance costumes with sequins on it. And somebody's like flat. They, that looks like a taxi. That's their set. Right. And I'm peering out the curtain and there's like seven people out there. And I was like, I made it. <laughs> Right. Like this is, this is actually as a kid, this is what I, when I wanted yeah. to go into showbiz, this is what I wanted. I wanted to be backstage with sequins and flats that look like taxis about to go on. Like I didn't think it was going to be, you know, Rolls Royces and mink coats and glamour stuff. Right. Like this is what I thought I, I made. I'm in vaudeville. <laughs> That's how I felt. Wow. It was great. So with your, um, these shows that you do, the solo shows, can you walk us through what your process is like from the page yeah. to stage? Um, so uh, with every play, I try to get better at writing plays. It's a radical idea, but I'm trying <laughs> to get better. Um, and so it takes me uh, somewhere around 20 drafts be before it goes in front of an audience, right? Of just sort of 20. So it takes about a year, year and a half or so. Uh, to write because it takes a while. Um, but then once I know I'm ready to, um, can you, oh, my screensaver yeah. went away. Mm -hmm. Can you still hear me? <laughs> yes. Okay, good. Just checking. My God. 
Um, <laughs> what was I talking about? It was very I'm deep, I'm sure. Very good what I was talking about. Oh, Paige to Sage, right. So <laughs> so I know I'm ready to get the get it into rehearsal. I know I'm I'm ready to stop developing it and start producing it. Um when um the developmental readings start getting irritating. Mm. You know how like you know, because I develop it just like just like how I know how to develop a play, which is that you have a reading and you have a talk back afterwards and you ask pointed questions and you get the information that you need. And there's a certain like tipping point <laughs> where there's a, there's a point where I don't know what I'm doing. And so they ask questions and I don't know how to answer it. Right. And then there's a point where I don't know what I'm doing, but they're quite, they still have questions. Right. And then there's a point where I know what I'm doing, but they don't like what I'm doing. And it's that point where I need to stop having the developmental right. reading. Yeah. Right. It's like, I know, like, this is a choice I made. I know why I'm making it. And I don't care that you'll like it. Like I'm making this choice. So, <laughs> yeah. So when I, that's when I'm like, okay, enough of you people stop talking to me. Uh, and then uh, I work with a director who usually is serves as sort of a director dramaturg slash midwife. Um, my, my um, first few solo shows were with a, a friend of mine named Alexis Shamo who lives in Los Angeles and, uh, I knew her in graduate school, so she uh, she did the first first few. Um, now I work with uh, Saffron Henke, who teaches at Colorado State, who's brilliant and amazing. She she and I work together for the last two shows, and she, that's great. Uh, and we get it on its feet. This last one I just did, Feast, is different from my other ones, though, in that my all my other solo shows, I play a character conveniently named mm -hmm. Megan Gogarty. And it's all sort of semi-autobiographical and everything, you know, it's everything's true and some of it actually happened. Like it's all that style of stuff. Um, but with this new one, I play a, a character who's who's not me, uh, who's a literary figure, in fact. And uh, I was like, oh, I have to act. Like I have to like Pretend learn to act. to be somebody else. Yeah. And I was really intimidated by it. Um, and I was really nervous about it. Um, but then I found it to be really freeing, ultimately, because I could do whatever I wanted. <laughs> mm -hmm. It was very free. The writing was very free and the acting was very free. So that, that was a nice surprise. I think a lot of listeners might be curious to know what the role of a director is in a process where you have written the piece and you're the only performer. Um, yeah. so how would you describe that role that the director plays in the room? Well, I don't know how it works for other people. I know that I am, I say this with all love to myself, but I think I'm hard to direct, uh, as an actor when it's my own work. Mm -hmm. Like it's just a different job. I remember Alexis saying to me, um, at one point she's like, you know, in the world of the actor takes the note, just take the note. And I was like, <laughs> no, <laughs> I, I won't. Cause I don't understand the note and I don't understand how the note that you're giving me as an actor does what I, the work I want it to do as a playwright. And so like she had to, you know, other, other, in other situations, the director can sort of bark at the actor and the actor takes it on faith and be like, well, you're the boss. I'll just do what you right. want. Um, but I, I feel like that's a, um, I don't mean to be difficult, but I feel like that's a dereliction of duty as a playwright to just be, to just hand it all over. Like I have to, I, I have to know 
why you're asking me to do what you're doing. So, so for me, in my process, the director functions as a director, but also as a dramaturg and also as an acting coach, mm-hmm. right? Because my training is in playwriting. So I, I don't know. I don't know how to breathe through my eyelids. Like, I got to figure that out. So um, <laughs> it kind of, it's a, sort of a, a, a messy process. And it's also a process that, that goes on for a long time. Like um, my last two shows with Saffron, Saffron was one of the very first people to read the first draft. She read multiple drafts all the way through. Um, so she was sort of with the project the whole way and kind of helped really shape shape it from the very beginning, as opposed to sort of flying in six weeks before we open and like throwing some blocking up there. Mm-hmm. Like she really is a, a collaborator in, on the deepest level. But what's great about that is then um, it, we cut down on a lot of arguments like, you know, go here, do this. Because I, I, we, we're already on the same page by the time rehearsal starts. There was, we had one, we had one argument with Feast where she wanted me to build the, build the energy of this moment. You know, she wanted me to get louder and bigger. And I was like, I don't want to be louder and bigger because in my mind, blah, 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 blah. And at a certain (laughs) point, you know, I spell out what I wanted and she spelled out what I wanted, what she wanted. And, and then she was like, you know, you have a point. I see your point. I see it differently. I guess you just have to decide. Mm. And I was like, well. Saffron, by this point, uh, I trust you. If you say it works better this way, it doesn't feel that way to me, but I, I know we're both cooking the same meal, so I'll trust you. So I did it her way, and <laughs> she was right. <laughs> right. So how do you stay creative? Like, how do you, you know, every day when you wake up, <laughs> like, how do you keep churning all these creative ideas and keep doing what you're doing. This is look, this is a this is this is the whole ball game. Mm-hmm. I have strong opinions about this because uh I am a, you know, a full-time professor. Mm-hmm. I have two young children. Uh I have responsibilities, you know. Um and it's very easy to uh not show up to my artistic practice. And still feel like I'm accomplishing things, right? Uh, and there have been stretches in my career where I've sort of found myself surprised to discover that I hadn't been creating anything. Because I was like, but I've been working. I've been, you know, submitting and I've been sending emails and I've been blah, 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 blah. But I haven't been making I've been writing uh, and, and sort of having that be a jolt and figuring out, well, how do I do it, right? Um, and so then I hear my two biggest opinions about it. One, I really firmly believe that process is all. It's all of it. Okay. It's not part of it. It's not the most important part. It is all of it. The difference between an entrepreneur and an artist is that an entrepreneur is focused on results and the artist is focused on process. Uh, And it must be so, right? So my process is I write a play I make the play, I send the play out into the world, I learn and reflect on that experience, mm. I start again. Mm. And whether people like the play or hate the play are frankly none of my business. Because I've never read a review that was like, 
oh, now I'm going <laughs> to write things differently. Like, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I'm going to make the work that I work, that I make, and people are going to like it or they're not going to like it. And oftentimes, like, I need to write a play because I need to write it, not because you know, I look at some of my my early work that nobody does and that frankly should be consigned to the dustbin of history. And and but I don't feel like those were mistakes. I don't regret any of those plays. Like I needed to write that play in order to learn what I need to do to write the next play, right? Process is all. It is all of it. I could not have written Feast had I not written Lady Macbeth and her pal Megan. I could not have written Lady Macbeth if I had not written uh house broken, right? Like every play sort of teaches me what I need to make the new play. So process is all right. So great. Hooray. Process. Number one. All right. Now what, what is the process? So here's my opinion. Number two, (laughs) I feel like there are two, two big skill sets in, to be an artist. You have to learn to be productive and you have to learn to be creative. And those things, creativity and productivity, mm-hmm. are like yin and yang, right? They're opposite, yeah. okay? They're opposite. And everybody intuitively, instinctually, has has one or the other that they feel more comfortable with, right? Um, and I am a person who prefers to be productive. It feels great. I love to have a list. I love to check things off the list. I love to say, look at all that I have accomplished today. I love to be orderly. I love to be rational. I love to go one, two, three, four, five. But creativity doesn't work like that. Creativity doesn't work one, two, three, four, five. Creativity goes one, golf ball, <laughs> airspace, seven. But that's actually how creativity works, right? And also creativity doesn't operate on a timeline. It doesn't doesn't care about your page count. Those are productivity tools. Creativity requires you to putter. It requires you to fuck around. Yeah. Can we say fuck yes, around? I just this is realized not public radio. <laughs> I'll be just checking. We'll just Beckett. tag it explicit when we Beckett said fuck, so I kind of feel like it's okay if Beckett's babies <laughs> say fuck, but I just wanted just just so so, but you like creativity requires a mess. It requires daydreaming. It requires associative thinking. It requires rest and play, mm-hmm. right? Like productivity requires work and rigor, but creativity requires play and lightness and silliness. And so my whole thing is what I do is I sort of, look at my schedule and I carve out chunks of time during the week. And it's not every day. I can't do it every day, but, but I try to do it at least once a week. Uh, And I carve out this time and it's like, I put a paddock around. It's like my creativity is a cow (laughs) and I put a paddock around these three hours or two hours. And then I'm going to let my cow do whatever she wants in the paddock. And my job is to guard that paddock with a pitchfork. Like keep keep the dentist appointments out of that mm. time. Keep the tell my students I'm unavailable to meet with them. Like I, I usually for me because I am fortunate enough to have a job where I don't teach on Fridays. So Fridays are the catch up day, and so I just take Friday morning and I'm I just nobody talk to me right? Guard up, pitchforks out. Because my, my cow needs that time to chew cud and daydream and putter around. And then within that paddock, I can do whatever I want. I can do whatever I want. And uh, I don't worry about page count. And I don't worry about, did I write today? 
I don't worry about any of that productivity stuff because that's not what I need help with. I need help with it. I just need to dream. I need the associative exercise. And I also know, here's my third thing, is that if I have a deadline, all that takes care of itself. So a game I'll play is I need to have a new draft or the first draft of a play done by mm, February 31st. (laughs) (laughs) That doesn't... I'll pick a day and be like, this is the day that a place got to get done. Yeah. Uh, and then I can do whatever I want between now and then, but come that day, the play must be done. And if I take that deadline really seriously, which I always do, mm. then it gets done. Yeah. So those are some of my methods. How did you, I assume you didn't have this all figured out when you were like 21. So, oh God! How, how did you, especially the part I'm curious about, which I think is hard for a lot of young writers is to stay focused on the process and not on the product. And I'm kind of wondering how you arrived at that very um, mentally sane approach. Oh, well, look, well, be, here's the thing. I'll, I'll tell you, I have great sympathy for people in their twenties um, because it's real to be, especially in playwriting, because it takes time to become a playwright. It takes time to learn how to write plays. And I look at some of the plays that I, look. I'm a great writer. Let's not cut to let's cut to chase. I'm really good at my job. <laughs> um, but the reason why I'm really good at my job is because I was really terrible at my job for a long, long time. You know, and I wrote plays, and they were the best thing that I could do. <laughs> You know, and they were, you know, they were ill-formed, misbegotten, <laughs> 18 endings, uh, didn't really say anything, didn't really add up to much, just sort of garbage plays. And I would feel so desperate and panicky sometimes. I'd be like, these plays are no good. Or I would think this is the best that I can do and still nobody likes it. And if nobody likes it, then it must not be any good, right? Because I'm looking for external mm-hmm. forces to, I'm looking to measure my success externally, right? Oh, you get a Jerome Fellowship, you're the winner. You get the Princess Grace Fellowship, you're the winner. You know, you get published by Samuel French, you're a real playwright. And if you don't have any of that, then you're bad and you're no good. You didn't do it. You're unsuccessful. You're a failure. You know, all these ideas. Uh, and so- the problem is it's really hard to have fun in that mm-hmm. mindset. And you have to have fun if you're going to make work. If you're going to make art, you got to have fun. I think this is this, – I really firmly believe this. Like the best stuff that I've ever done has come out of a place where I'm just really amusing myself. Mm-hmm. And not just comedy, right? Drama can get can, – you can really engage yourself. I don't – Sam – Sarah, have you found yourself sometimes where you're writing a play and you're like moving yourself to tears <laughs> or you're like, you're jumping out, you're like they're, they're, it's an angry oh, yeah. scene and you're like acting around in your mind. Like you're, you're, you're having fun. Like it's a fun, engaged, full body process. Right. And like, that's the best writing. And so, but if you constantly have one eye on the door, you constantly have one eye on who's liking this and who's, who is this going well? It's really hard to get, to have any fun at all when you feel sort of judged. So my advice and what I wish that I had done, I wish someone had told me this in my twenties. So now I tell people my advice is find a community of people 
who you like and who like you and just start making bad theater. Mm -hmm. Like just start making bad theater and make it anywhere and make it as frequently as possible and have as much fun as you can. Like really low stakes, frequent, really low stakes, frequent creating. I want some people. Yeah. I keep threatening to do this and someday I will. And I just haven't yet. Um, but I would really love there to be like a breakout of food court plays. <laughs> yes. Like plays that are designed to be done in a food court. And they have to be like under five minutes because you have to be finished before the security guards can kick right. you out. Right. Like, and you have to kind of, and but just go do it. Like I, I really love 2009 when we were all doing flash mobs. Like that's great. Yeah. That's or awesome. like in airports. I think. That would be such yes. a great place for a short place because there's everybody's these, held captive there. Yeah, and there's all of this uh, um, stuff, you know, uh, plays for just one person or two people, you know, plays that take place in a car. Like, we have to really free ourselves from this idea that we need money to make mm-hmm. theater. It's such garbage. No, we don't. Mm-hmm. We don't need it. We, we don't actually need it. Uh, what we need is uh, an idea. <laughs> What we need is um, energy and mm-hmm. fun and camaraderie and people. That's that's what we need. And it can be an audience of, of four. It can be an audience of two. It can be – it doesn't have to be – it doesn't have to be a big deal. Uh, because the point – the point is the process. Make the work. Put the work out into the world. Reflect on, learn – what that process taught you and then start again. That's the way to do it. I feel so inspired. That's what I think. I'm just like, (laughs) Oh, you're amazing. Inspirational. (laughs) Um, I guess. So I'll ask the last question before we move to glistens. Um, so this question was inspired by Gwydion Sullivan when he was on the show. So the question is, because he talked a lot about, being a 21st century artist, what that means. And so our question to you is, you know, how would you define what it means to be an artist in the 21st century? I'm going to go even more specific and talk about what it's to be a theater artist, if you don't mind. Okay. Yeah. Because, uh, so my whole life I've been told, you know, as soon as I started studying theater in the 20th century, darling, uh, (laughs) I was told that theater is dying art. Theater's dead. Theater's dying. There's no more theater. Ever, you know, movies forever. Theater, R.I.P. Right? But that's that's turned out to be bunk. I think theater is more important now than ever, ever more important now because the one thing that uh, cameras cannot capture is uh, the collective magic of a live audience. Right? Um, you know, I watched Beyonce's Homecoming on Netflix as did the world. And that was amazing. Right. But how much more amazing would it have been to have been there? Right. Like really, if like, if you, how much, how amazing would it be to be at a Beyonce concert? Like the energy of that. Right. And, and you can't, and watching it on television just doesn't even compare to, to the actual lived live experience, the live event, watching somebody else ride a roller coaster is no substitute for riding a roller coaster and a Mm -hmm. VR version, a virtual reality roller coaster (laughs) is no substitute for an actual roller coaster. Right. And that's what theater is. Theater is an event. It's not a product. 
It's an event. It's a haunted house. It's a rave. It's a party. We are party planners, playwrights. That's what we're doing. We are planning experiences and experiences cannot be captured and they cannot be recreated easily. They are unique, one of a kind, you had to be there experiences. And that, and it's a collective experience, an experience that we have together. And we are so isolated here at the beginning of the 21st century. We are all so isolated. We are in our, we're very rarely in the same room. Even when we, our, our bodies are in the same room, right? We go straight into our phones. We, we yeah. teleport out of there to our, to our cyber world. Right. We don't we don't talk to one another. We're not face to face. We're just very isolated. And so when as a theater artist, I can make an experience that requires us to come together in a room that is potent. That is so potent because we're so hungry for it. I so- think that's why sometimes it's hard for us as theater people to make the case that it's worth you know, paying, going to see a play, getting up off the couch and leaving the house and going to a theater because, you know, you have to kind of explain to people why you have to be there, why it matters to be there in person. Right. Right. But I also think that it's, we're a little bit like um, crack cocaine, Mm-hmm. And that once you try it, you're hooked. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like if you have a really good experience in the theater. I mean, I think our biggest problem is that most people's experience in the theater is like their high school production of Grease. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like that's what they think theater is, right? right. Like right. they have these like very- Or they think it's two ideas. people sitting at a kitchen table talking. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They have this really sort of limited, sort of boring ideas about the theater. I'll tell you, this is one of the things I love about stand-up comedy is that stand-up comedy, just because it's called stand-up comedy, gets around some of those barriers. Yeah. But you look at some of the, look at, you know, people like the Lucas Brothers, look at um, Mike Birbiglia, look at, um, there's a lot of like really, um, you know, Hannah Gadsby, like there's a lot of like cutting edge stand-up comics that are, they're making theater is actually what they're doing, right? Yeah. Mike Birbiglia is a playwright. He just doesn't call himself a playwright because who wants to see a play? <laughs> So he calls himself a stand-up comedian and he calls the work that he does stand-up comedy and calls it his the work that he does a special. And we mm-hmm. go, oh, okay. I mean, I think the secret really is just to say you're writing a football game and then like everyone will show up. <laughs> that is a brilliant idea. Um, that is a brilliant idea, Sam. <laughs> no, seriously, you should write the football game play. All right. That's, okay. <laughs> because because, because here's what's great about that. Here's what's great. You're like, we're putting on a football game. It's mm-hmm. called the football game play. And we're putting this like, don't, don't you, I mean, look, I want to see that play. I don't even know anything about it, but like, they're <laughs> like what? Like, I want to go. Yeah. I think right. that the, 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 the box that we have to break out of when they say think outside the box, I think the box is the proscenium. I think the box mm. is this two people at a kitchen table. It's, it's true West. And I love true West, but you know, it's that's time's passed. Like this whole sort of idea of like we're gonna sit mm-hmm. and talk about our feelings and and stare out the window and pretend to be cinema. Like we gotta not do that. We gotta be weird and theatrical and and inventive and create and in what's beautiful about it is we can, right? Because the only unlike cinema, unlike film, which I love, but unlike film, like film. The ceiling for film is like you you have to if you see a boom mic in the shot, 
you know, you're out. If you see right. a palm tree that's supposed to take place in Philadelphia, you see a palm tree out the window, you're out, right? There's a, a level of realism that cinema requires, right? But film, uh, theater doesn't have that requirement. The only thing we require is the minds of our audience. Anything mm-hmm. that we can get that our collective audience to imagine, we can do. So, yeah, put the football play on. All right. Sounds awesome. I, I'll get to work. <laughs> <laughs> so, Megan, where can our listeners find you? Oh, well, I don't know. Uh, um, where can they find me? I, I live. I breathe. <laughs> do you I, have a website? <laughs> oh, yes, good. I do have a website. It's called MeganGogarty.com. Great. I tweet. I'm My tweets are, you know, here's how to waste your time. Come watch my tweets. <laughs> I, do, I do a lot of insipid tweets. What, what is your Twitter handle? It's at Megan Gogarty. Oh, I don't even have like, cool initials. I just spilled my whole name out because I didn't understand Twitter when I signed up for it. Cool. I didn't understand it. But that's fine. Um, I, I'm not mad about it. I'm, I'm happy being 44. So uh, <laughs> you can find me on, on the Twitter and you can find me on MeganGogarty.com. And uh, I don't know around set is that good did i answer it that's perfect (laughs) great (laughs) great uh so this is the part of our show where we do glistens um inspired adopted from dare club uh at the end of the show we like to share our favorite glistens of the week um so it could be any literally anything on the show uh that you've noticed or seen or learned about um, so yeah, who wants to start? I'll start. Um, my glisten is hot water <laughs> because right now I have none in my apartment and it, you know, it's really making me appreciate all of the modern amenities that we have available to us. Um, most of the time. Wow. That's good. My <laughs> glisten yeah, is go ahead. The, secret, the secret Klondike bar. Ooh, what secret? That I hid. Oh. I hid it. I hid it. I hid it under the frozen oh broccoli. I was like, they'll never look there. Oh, Who are you hiding it from? Your oh, family? Oh, wretched children. <laughs> I, it was wonderful. They And they didn't find it. And then I waited for them to leave. And then I ate it. <laughs> Does that count? That's a perfect glisten. Yeah, that's a great glisten. <laughs> I'm really happy for you. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um, Sarah, what's yours? Yes. Yeah, so my glisten is on Thursday, my stepfather finally, after I don't know how many attempts or months of studying, but he finally became an American citizen. Hey! Oh, cool. Cool. Yeah. That's great. And it was my first time attending the, the sworn in ceremony thing. And it was such a weird experience. Like, that's a theater that I was like, never thought I would experience, <laughs> but it was just like, it was like, everyone's coming in. You have, um, all, uh, the people that are, you know, getting sworn in and then the friends, uh, family and friends all in the back. were just like sitting in the front or in the back of the theater and just like watching. <laughs> this is, it was massive. Like I've never seen this many people. Like I honestly thought this was a Beyonce concert. I was like, why are there so many people here? Um, but that was an interesting experience. Um, videos that were played at this. One of the video was Donald Trump 
sh- like sharing to the Whoa. world what it means to be an American citizen, how it's an important thing to happen oh, right now. Yeah. It was oh my god, really weird. Like I was like, I can't believe the irony of this all right now. And yeah, I thought, but that was a weird. It was it was very exciting, fun, and I was super happy for my stepdad. But there was all these weird things that happened. <laughs> It's a weird time. Yeah, it's a weird time. They should get Fiona Hill to do a video about what it means to be American. I think she oh, would really? do a really good job. Yeah. Wow. Well, congratulations to your stepdad. Thank you. All right. Well, we have reached the end. Excellent. Thanks for having me on, y'all. It was fun. Thanks, Thanks Megan. Megan.